When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Who's Natalie Norpit? Natalie Norpit is my deep confession to Natalie because all I want to do since I've met her and seen her name is to call her Natalie Norpit at every opportunity and not just Natalie Norpit instead of Natalie Orpit, but for some reason to do it in my worst absolute Cockney accent. Um, it has a very My Fair Lady vibe for reasons I just don't understand, but it has been my weird, weird impulse for weeks now. No, I had to sit through so many years of Jurassic puns. No name jokes. Wait, wait, Scott, it's your, it's your time. Let's hear it. Natalie Norpit. What? I think we just lost a whole bunch of listeners. It's a lot of just vowel sounds, unnecessary vowel sounds. I'm not sure I fully understand the podcast medium, but is there a way to convey the facial expression that I'm giving right now? You just did. I think the audience is sharing it. (laughs) And hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's edition of Rational Security 2.0, Rational Security Part 2. I am here. I'm Scott R. Anderson, Senior Editor for Lawfare and at the Brookings Institution and Columbia Law School and a couple other places. And I am here with my colleagues, Quinta. Hello. And Alan Rosenstein. Hello, hello. And in a very special podcast debut, we are joined today by Lawfare's brand new executive editor, Natalie Orpit. Natalie, we're so happy to have you with us today. Welcome to Rational Security. Thanks for having me, guys. And guys, we are really hitting an important milestone today, solidifying our status as podcast for the elites. We are officially bi-coastal as of this episode for Rational Security 2.0, as I am luxuriating technically on vacation between a pair of family weddings here in San Francisco, California. Alex in the middle of the country. I am not bi-coastal. Scott, you are such a bi-coastal snob. That you have forgotten that I am not coastal at all. I am in the great state of Minnesota. We are transcontinental, Scott. We're not elite. We are real America through and through. Alan Rosenstein. When Alan Rosenstein is your sole tie remaining to real America, you know you are in difficult territory. <laughs> Let me help out the Midwest here. I am born and bred Chicagoland person. I went to the University of Michigan for undergrad. And I would like to just say that I am the real America. Well, at least we have one. That's good. That's good. Well, thank you, Natalie. But we are excited to have everyone here for us today for our episode. This is the Millie's Crossing edition of Rational Security 2.0, where we have a set of very exciting topics to discuss and share with you. First, we have up the AUKUS awkwardness. Why does the new US-UK-Australia relationship have France up in a huff? Then we're going to talk about how it's not like on J6, the flop of the Justice for J6 rally here in D.C. this past weekend, and what all the media hype leading up to it tells us about right-wing extremism here in the United States and the way people talk about it. And finally, we'll be discussing Millie's Crossing. Did the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff step out of line in his communications with the Chinese and with other senior officials in the national security apparatus in the days surrounding January 6th? Or has he done so afterwards? 
First up for our first topic, Alan, let me hand it over to you. Sure. So first, I, I should admit that for the last week, I have been pronouncing this new trilateral agreement between Australia, the UK, and the United States as IUCAS, which for some reason is, for me, the most natural way of reading A-U-K-U-S. But I had this sneaking suspicion that it was not, in fact, pronounced IUCAS, and so some YouTubing today before the podcast has corrected me, and it is, in fact, a much more reasonable and much more boring-sounding AUKUS. And thus concludes our coverage of AUKUS. <laughs> you know you are, because you're a product of the 90s, and you're channeling your Street Fighter background knowledge into the pronouncement of this, because oh it's my God, that's, is what you're looking that's for. That's exactly what that's I'm doing. so close. That's I had the same instinct. I hear what you're saying. That is, wow, that's deep. That's really good. That is exactly what's going on. And I did not realize it until you just, until you just said it. I just, want to really, I just want to call it the Ryukin now from now on. So AUKUS, also known as the Ryukin Agreement, is a new defense pact between Australia, the UK, and the United States. Its immediate short-term effect is to provide the Australians with technology and assistance and acquiring nuclear-powered submarines. And uh, although the agreement is between these three countries, there are, are two additional countries that are pretty heavily implicated. Uh, one is China, because uh, it's pretty clear that the impetus for this agreement is to change the balance of forces in the Pacific region and to ally Australia more closely with the United States, in particular in resisting Chinese influence. And then the second country, as Scott alluded to, is France, which got very angry at being excluded from this agreement, uh, not just because they were not invited to the party, but because Australia is giving up, is reneging on a deal that France had with it to supply a number of diesel-powered French submarines, a deal that was worth many tens of billions of dollars. And so the, the French got very angry. They've recalled their French ambassador to the United States. Scott, let me let me start with you and let's let's Talk about the China portion of this first. How big a deal is this, do you think, from a, a grand strategy perspective? Does it meaningfully change the balance of power in the Pacific? Or is this shift, particularly in Australia's foreign policy, more incremental? I think this is a pretty notable step, but not one that's necessarily entirely surprising. It's a continuation of a trajectory we've seen over the past few years, really, where Australia is concerned about the very bullish Chinese foreign policy, very aggressive in the Pacific region, and has been willing to push back a little bit, even though they have very close trade ties, even though China is a major market for Australian exports and also provides Australian imports, if I recall correctly, you know, in its substantial numbers. Australia is still asserting its interest in maintaining particularly what is often described as kind of the international legal order in the Pacific. And in the Pacific and for Pacific states, that is, is often used as shorthand for particularly maritime rights, access rights, the limitations of different maritime territories that determines how different states can use the kind of somewhat shared, somewhat not shared assets and resources of the Pacific region, which is a very frequent source of tension between China and other states in the region. Um, you think about China's assertions regarding the South China Sea and other areas. It's a source of a lot of concern for other states in the region that China's become more and more aggressive in making these assertions of international legal rights and then backing them up potentially with certainly strong rhetoric, but occasionally military force as well. So I think this is a notable step. I mean, what Australia is doing here is a little bit being misrepresented by this focus on submarines, because this deal is first and foremost about 
the handing over of this nuclear submarine technology, something only I think six other states currently have. And what essentially allows you to do is to produce a submarine that can stay submerged for, in theory, years at a time, if the human beings on it can stay submerged that long. I think that's the bigger restraint at that point because of the power source is so enduring. Uh, diesel submarines can run on batteries very quietly for an extended period, but they have, have to surface, run their engines, burn diesel to recharge their batteries, then can go back under. Nuclear submarines don't have that problem. And it makes them a very potent balancing weapon because it means that these submarines can lurk out in the ocean, particularly an area like the Pacific, which is a huge maritime area where you know you have naval assets that need to be able to travel long distances to position themselves strategically and can serve as launch platforms for various types of missiles. We know that under this elite, this new alliance, all three states were very clear. We have no intention of putting any nuclear weapons on these subs, even though they are nuclear powered subs, but it does let them put conventional weapons on it. That makes them much more potent force in potentially balancing China because it means the threat of China facing serious targeting of its own mainland in the event of a military conflict becomes much more serious. So there's, 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 there's some significance there. And it's significant in an interesting way that the United States is choosing, instead of deploying more of its own capabilities in this way, to actually help allies develop it more. And this is actually, I think, arguably a little bit of a flavor of that new restraint-oriented foreign policy lean that we've seen begin to come out in parts of D.C., not as full wholeheartedly or full-throatedly as a lot of people might like. But I think it's nonetheless part of that. But the real issue here is the beginning of a new relationship, because this is the tip of the spear for a new sort of engagement between Australia, the United States and the UK around this issue set. And that's really going to include more missiles, more personnel, more U.S. soldiers on Australian territory. And it puts Australia, again, as kind of the front line in this effort to balance against China in a new and interesting way. But again, not something that something we've seen, I think, momentum towards for a little while. So I, I want to turn I want to talk about France's reaction but before before I do that, I, I do want to just observe that this does seem very embarrassing for the Chinese, just in the sense that Australia has an enormous amount to lose from allying itself with anyone in opposition to the Chinese, both because of where Australia is just geographically and also the fact that China is just an enormous trading partner for Australia, by far the biggest export market for, for Australian products and, and raw materials. And so I, I think it's an interesting testament to just how badly China has squandered its international standing, that it it does seem sort of systematically to be alienating all of its geographic rivals. And and what what I don't know, and would be sort of curious to, to find out more about, and I, I hope kind of learn more about this going forward, is, you know, is, is this a intentional choice of the Chinese for some other strategic objective. For example, they think that asserting their international water rights is worth alienating their neighbors. Or is it just bad decision-making and diplomatic incompetence on the part of Chinese, you know, what's often called wolf warrior diplomacy, and that they are just alienating people completely unnecessarily? You know, the, the, the Chinese pride themselves on really, really skilled diplomats, and they certainly have them. But this does strike me as a pretty big blow to Chinese diplomacy in its in its area. You know, I think that's right, basically. Your point about the wolf warrior diplomacy, I think, is, is really a sign here. China has moved from being a more quietly aggressive state for a long time, building up economic power and with the military power, to in the last few years being more outwardly aggressive. I think 
most people would say it's because it is in its calculus has reached the conclusion that you are in fact in a position as China to leverage all that power you've been accumulating and advance your foreign policy goals in ways that other states aren't going to be able to push back against. And Australia is a big test of that sort of theory. And and maybe it's proven that proving that China is miscalculated, um, but maybe not. It's a long term game. And I, I think China, maybe plenty of people in China probably think that the real outcome is, is yet to produce itself. So China is pretty clearly the big loser here. But France certainly seems to think that it's the big loser here. And the response that the United States in particular has gotten from France has been even, you know, especially by the standards of diplomacy, quite pungent, let's say. Like a good French cheese. Like a good French cheese, exactly. Or like like a bad, pungent in a bad way, like a bad French cheese. Sunny Which are the best French ball. cheeses if they smell terrible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, w- words like betrayal, uh, words like disgrace, words that you don't usually hear about cheeses, French or otherwise, uh, have been used by the French. The French even recalled their ambassador to the United States over this. So, so Natalie, let, let me ask you, um, why is France so upset and do they have any right to be? Sure. Well, so you'll be happy to know that I actually read some of the French press in large part so that I could tell you all that I had and you could hopefully Oof. be impressed by that. I am very impressed. impressed. It's, it's very fancy. Merci, mes amis. So, I mean, first of all, I think it's important to note that the French also recalled their ambassador to Australia. And in the press that I saw, there's actually more focus on Australia and feeling betrayed by Australia than there is by the United States. So obviously, in large part, that's because Australia is the one that broke off this incredibly valuable contract, which it should be noted was with a French company that is majority owned by France. And there are concerns sort of about what that means for the broader France-Australia relationship, and also a little bit more broadly about French relationships with all three of these powers. So some of it relates to fears that all three of these global powers are turning away from security interests in Europe and creating too much of a singular focus on countering China, and that in doing so, they might actually be doing so badly because they're not doing enough consultation with Europeans, whether European individual states or the European Union or other European entities like NATO. So I think that's a big part of it. I also thought it was very interesting that former Prime Minister Rudd of Australia wrote actually wrote an op-ed in Le Monde, which is one of the most prominent French newspapers, where he raised a couple of those issues. And also, I thought he raised a couple of issues relating to the contract itself, which made me wonder whether France or the company will bring some litigation. I'm not sure exactly what the legal regime would be, but there are trade agreements, regimes, there are treaty regimes, et cetera. So it will be interesting to watch to the extent litigation is coming, what it will look like and how diplomacy is affected by that. Can I ask a question, actually, Natalie? I'm One thing that I have been struggling to figure out is there are a bunch of different ways that I could phrase this, but to what extent is this sour grapes? And What I mean by that, and with apologies to any French or European listeners, is that it is unclear to me to what extent France is responding in perhaps a bit of an extreme way, but to a legitimate slight, 
and to what extent this is sort of a expression of discomfort with the fact that Europe is not the center of the world anymore and that the US is, you know, we're we're pivoting to Asia at long last we're finally pivoting that, you know, the concern about being in good with the French is not at the top of Australia's list that, you know, it's there were a lot of jokes we've made some of them about like oh ho ho France is mad how hilarious I'm curious if you saw anything in the French reporting and writing about this that kind of spoke to that. Like, am am I being too crude and sort of dismissing or questioning where some of that outrage is coming from? No, I think that's an analysis that's not uncommon, that this may be a an example of France sort of contending with changes to the international order. Um, I saw some analysts talking about how this is disrespectful of France's historical prominence in the region, which mostly referred to their colonial interests, which was not particularly such compelling a strange to me. point to make. Agreed. But no, I think that's that's a common thing. I mean, Scott and Alan, I'm interested in your thoughts on this as well. Yeah, I'm, I got to say, I'm I'm pretty unimpressed with the French response. I mean, for, for, for a couple of reasons. So so first, it, it's a little a little hypocritical for the French to get super upset about getting muscled out of their submarine deal with Australia, given that the way that they got their submarine deal in the first place back in 2016 was by muscling out the Japanese submarine deal with Australia. So I don't know, maybe the Australians need to think a little bit about how they treat their trading partners, but it's not like France is some innocent party here that has always been true and faithful and and has gotten jilted by Australia. And the other thing I I will say is I, I am a little suspicious of the timing of, of all of this. It does seem to me that in particular, French President Macron's quite extreme response to this is in part fueled by his own domestic political calculations. So the, the, there's a French election coming up in, in April of, of next year. And it's obviously not a good look, especially in a country like France, which has a tradition of strong political leadership to have what is legitimately an embarrassing blow to international prestige. Now, again, it is part of the job of U.S. diplomats to know this and to plan for this and to appropriately massage the egos of their of our allies, you know, when this happens. And so, if if France is getting mad, that is kind of by definition a sign that the U.S. made a mistake somewhere. But I, I do have trouble taking this too seriously in terms of some grand moral claim on on France's behalf. And I also don't see I, I don't see this lasting too long as a big thorn between France and America, just because what is France really going to do? You know, they they need America more than America needs France. And the other European powers, especially those in Eastern Europe, need America just as much as they need France. And so um, I think this will blow over fairly quickly. Well, the one thing I think we all need to bear in mind is that no one has done more wonderful things with sour grapes than the French. Uh, And so I think we can see a lot of pretty Nicely done. You're welcome. I've been saving that for a while now. It's your (laughs) lifetime, guys. I really agree with everything Alan and Natalie said, but I do think there's another layer here that people are, is worth considering that I think may be in play, particularly from the French perspective. And that's something a lot of people aren't fully aware of, which is that there is kind of a hierarchy in global strategic relationships among the U.S. allies sort of network, where French and European allies, while very close, still have kind of a second tier under 
the what are often thought of as kind of the English speaking democracies. So it's, you know, United States, UK, Australia, and then New Zealand and Canada are being the other ones. Those five countries comprise the five eyes, which is a big intelligence sharing network. The UK, US and Australia actually in lots of other domains about sharing defense technology have their own privileged status. And there's actually a great book to be written about why it is these five countries still feel like they are able to share their closest secrets with each other more effectively, committing often to not spy on each other like they may do with other states. At least that's rumored to be part of these sorts of arrangements, sharing information at an operational level much more readily than they do even with other close allies. That kind of ties back a little bit. It has its origin in the post-World War II era where you can kind of see it because European democracy was newish at the time and, and you know had an uncertain future. Hard to argue that now. But I think that's part of France's concern here. France, I think many European allies often feel like they are given the sort a little bit of a second tier status, still close, still close allies, but kept out of, you know, the room where it happens at the highest level strategic decisions. And that's happening here in the Indo-Pacific region, which is a region where France and other European governments claim an interest, have a sought to assert a, a degree of influence because they see a strategic interest in balancing China, among other factors, in trade relationships, things like that, but don't have the kind of hook. So Australia was going to be, that relationship was going to be a major peg on which they could get that sort of influence in the region. And that's now gone away. And I think that's why we've seen the French raise the stink and then strongly suggest that, in fact, the way to resolve this is to let them into this arrangement and to make it not AUKUS, but FAUKUS. They're going to pick a different acronym because that one doesn't work, uh, but a, a new arrangement with them involved because they want to have that foothold there. And I think that's what a lot of this outrage is. I suspect it's at least in substantial part strategic for the domestic political reasons Alan noted, but for these geostrategic reasons as well, because maybe this is a window where France can get its foot in the door a different way, even if this way it intended kind of dissolved. Yeah. And one other quick thing there is the question of efforts to increase the European Union's joint defense and security cooperation, which is something that's sort of being floated, but this you know, could be seen as detracting from that effort. So I think that's another component just to add to what you were saying, Scott. All right. Well, I'm going to take over and move things back to the good old US of A. Where's your, where's your forced segue? I was just going for it, you know? That was your forced no, segue. No nice. forced segues. Let's go back across the Atlantic or the Pacific, wherever we're coming from. Are we bringing our cheese? Exactly. To good old Washington, D.C., where I currently am, and where we had a little rally on Saturday, emphasis on little. So it was the Justice for J6 rally, which was meant to be a gathering of patriots in support of the January 6 rioters who are currently incarcerated pre-trial in the DC jail. And it was kind of a bust. Not that many people showed up. Um, Washingtonian, which is a local publication, has a great article about it that starts the new fencing around the Capitol proved unnecessary on Saturday. And then a picture of a guy playing a guitar with an American flag cape uh, alone in a field. So that was pretty much the vibe. But cops and journalists were everywhere. I think that the, there was definitely an expectation in some quarters that this was going to be, you know, the next January 6th, it was going to be a huge riot, it was going to be a big problem, Capitol Police really beefed up, journalists were everywhere, and it kind of puttered out. And I think that there are a lot of questions about 
why that is, and also whether the press was irresponsible in hyping it, whether uh, journalists should have been a little more attentive to the fact that people were saying online, you know, don't go, don't, you know, this is this is all a trap. We don't want to have another January 6th. So I was curious what everyone's thoughts about this were, especially, you know, for what it has to say about the state of the far right movement right now and whether we're kind of fighting the last war by looking at other rallies on the horizon and sort of getting worried about them when that may not actually be where the threat is. So I I don't think we should read too much either way into the failure of this riot or sorry, of the failure of this protest to attract more people. I keep making this very legitimate Freudian slip. I keep calling it a riot. I'm actually, I don't even mean to do it, but I guess that just, that just shows that I'm not a true patriot. I, I, I don't think we should read too much into this because it's, a pattern that we've seen with other far-right events. So when we have big far-right protests that turn violent, there's usually some indication that it's going to happen, but it does tend to take us by surprise. So January 6th was an example of this, but then obviously the the precursor to all of this, which was the far-right march in Charlottesville was another example, that becomes violent. And the response is then to flood the zone the next time with police and journalists and counter-protesters. And that quite naturally then creates hesitance from the far right to go out. And then when you have a fizzled next event, then the response is to say, aha, I guess the far right was a paper tiger all along until the next time when we, you know, yet again, underestimate their strength and you can have another problem. The cycle just keeps repeating and repeating. So, you know, I I don't think this says much either way about the strength of the far right movement. My concern is that we don't look at this and say, oh, I guess Trumpism is over because the real threat is not just more violent riots, but it's really what's happening in a lot of Republican states across the country with the undermining of state electoral processes. That's my main concern. And and I would hate for us to forget about that as the real threat uh, and focus too much on these, these protests that sometimes fizzle out. Yeah. And I think another component that's genuinely scary, even though it did not end up being prominently spoken because of the fact that this rally ended up being much less than expected, is the thing that was underlying it as a premise, which is that these people who are being prosecuted for January 6th related activities slash insurrection are political prisoners And that's just part of the continuing effort in some quarters to chip away at the institutions of of government, sort of the cornerstones of our democracy by delegitimizing the legal system. And I find that really, really troubling. And the fact that that message sort of didn't get the splash because the rally itself didn't get the splash that some were expecting is sort of putting that issue to the side in a way that concerns me. If that's still a prominent thinking among some people, it's not going to go away and it's going to be hard to track how that is impacting thinking and organizing and strategizing. I thought one of the most interesting little sub stories that came out of this actually had to do with the Capitol Police and a request that was initially was put in by some of that organization to have a National Guard contingent available, an armed National Guard contingent, the original request available as a supplemental force, something that a lot of people have, and including people inside the Capitol Police, have criticized the Capitol Police and other security folks in D.C. for not having on January 6th itself. 
interestingly, when they made the request this time, it got shot down internally because they failed to run all the right boxes and check all the boxes internally because evidently there's some sort of heightened process that has to go through for a request like this, which is very abnormal, even in cases where uh, local authorities request National Guard assistance with popular demonstrations and events, which is not unusual for governors to do or for the D.C. government to do necessarily. Like the inauguration often has National Guard people involved supplementing security in various regards, but usually not like armed riot control, which is the same seem, seem basically what this request was, was for initially. They end up compromising and saying, well, we're going to have 100 guys, but they're going to be unarmed. They're just going to have batons, so not unarmed, but not firearms, batons, and they're going to be with armed Capitol Police, and they'll be providing supplemental security. I would not want to be one of those National Guardsmen necessarily uh, in that position. But it's interesting that they get kind of ratcheted down. And I actually appreciate that in part based on what we talked about last week around this issue. You know, I, I do think you have to strike a right balance here when you're talking about what is still First Amendment protected activity and how strongly you respond as the government. I think there's a lot of rightful criticism uh, saying that the government maybe responded too strongly to this, both because it gives too much legitimacy to the cause and because it could suppress legitimate First Amendment activity. I think there are actually good arguments on both sides to some extent. That's why striking the right balance is, is kind of necessary and it's a hard thing to do. But it's worth noting the Capitol Police, like rank and file, evidently were really upset that this request was denied. And because a lot of them, I think, are still living through like really, really real trauma left over from an event for, for them was less than a year ago and was very violent and threatened their lives um, and that they felt unsupported in continuing to pursue that mission. It just shows what a hard situation this is for local authorities to deal with when you have a movement that is not always expressly violent, but but clearly begins to bleed into that direction in a few regards and is targeting, you know, potentially, or at least in the past, has targeted public institutions. Uh, and it's just a really hard thing for any democracy to deal with. And, and this is our turn dealing with it. And, and it is challenging. Yeah, I mean, I have a lot to say about that Capitol Police request, which I think is really interesting. And the part that jumped out at me is actually not the fact that they backed off, but the fact that, as you said, Scott, they requested National Guard assistance and it was turned down because they didn't go through the protocol. That might not sound very important, but the inability to go through the protocol was actually a huge problem on January 6th itself. The Senate has put together a report on this that Molly Reynolds and I have written about at Lawfare, Molly Reynolds, last week's guest, where they, the Capitol Police essentially asked for National Guard support on January 6th, and it was turned down because nobody knew how to make that request properly. Like, the people on the board of the Capitol Police, whose job it is to submit that request, didn't know what the right procedure was because the instructions were so confusing. And the Senate seems like it couldn't even figure out what the right procedures are. Now, here we are, eight months later, they still don't know how to do this. So whether or not you know there should have been National Guardsmen out on the mall, which, as you say, Scott, I think is actually like a pretty complicated question, I'm kind of just bewildered by the fact that like you think they would have dealt with this by now and yet here they are and I'm very glad that they weren't caught with their pants down again but it I think it really shows just how politically organizationally institutionally you know whatever adverb you want we've just completely failed to grapple with what happened in January do, do we know if this is a problem just on the Capitol Police side? Like they don't know which website they have to click on to fill out the Google form? Or or, <laughs> or is, the, is the National Guard just putting way too much bureaucratic red tape 
I mean, I filled out a lot of Google Forms. I can help if that's the problem. (laughs) So it has to, the request has to go through the Capitol Police board. And I can't remember specifically what the problem is, but there's some confusion about the specific procedure and the people it has to go through on the board because the way that it is set up, it's just legally extremely confusing. And apparently nobody has bothered to figure it out. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Yes, and this would all be resolved, actually, if D.C. were a state and had its own National Guard, such that the Capitol Police could make their call to the mayor of D.C., who could then mobilize the D.C. National Guard. Just a short plug for those of you who are not aware of the arguments in favor of D.C. statehood. 51st state. And there is legislation actually being considered right now about giving D.C. more control over its National Guard. I don't know the exact contours and how it would fit in here, uh, but it is currently before Congress, as I recall. But wait, Natalie, I want to understand that more. So I, I'm totally in favor of giving D.C. statehood, but but it, it, would it really be easier? I mean, if, if this is if the if the Capitol Police Board is so dysfunctional that nine months after its greatest failure, literally in its history, it still does not have a procedure to call the right person. I mean, DC could be a state, but the Capitol Police would presumably at that point still answer to the Capitol, which, and the Senate and the House, which clearly have just done a terrible job of of reforming it. Or, or am I misunderstanding the structure somehow? No, I admit to not having an understanding of what the meeting point is between the Capitol Police and the mobilization of the National Guard. What I do know is that because D.C. is not a state, D.C. doesn't have the authority to mobilize its own National Guard. So it has to go through the Pentagon, which I have to imagine creates a lot more red tape. But in terms of the juncture point between the Capitol Police, who apparently still don't understand exactly what the mechanism is, and the actual decision to mobilize, I don't know. Yeah, that's my understanding as well, basically, that, you know, normally the the mayor who's sort of standing in for the governor here would just be able to call up the guard if the Capitol Police called her up and asked, but she can't do that because the authority runs through the president. So you end up with this kind of bizarre system where it has to go through the board and then to the Pentagon. And again, the same Senate report I mentioned before has a very long section about why it took 
three or four hours for the Pentagon to actually deploy the guard after the request successfully got through. So there are a lot of different moving pieces and a lot of different choke points. But the fact that DC can't deploy the guard on its own is definitely one of them. Well, from one DC screw up, let's go to another potential DC screw up. Uh, And that is the eponymous topic of this episode, Millie's Crossing. Late last week, we had a revelation from the forthcoming Bob Woodward and Robert Costa book, Peril, that's forthcoming, which in the usual fashion for a Bob Woodward book has begun leaking out in bits and dribbles uh, as they send chapters and excerpts to local reporters who then publish pieces drawing from some of the more sensational or some of the more exceptional facts that they have pulled out in their interviews with people, uh, in this case, focusing specifically on the last days of the Trump administration. And in particular, a lot of the scrutiny last week fell on the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, who already has come under some scrutiny for having conversations with Nancy Pelosi about nuclear chain of command during the Trump administration and from a a couple other contexts, kind of raising some doubts about the Trump administration's response to the Black Lives Matter protest last summer, even at the same time while also appearing at Lafayette Square, uh, kind of taking criticism from both sides there. And in this case, the two revelations that have come forward were both related to activities and perceptions that China might have had and was believed to have had based on intelligence assessments that the United States both was in a position of political instability up to and around January 6th, and that President Trump might be planning some sort of attack on China at the time. And to assuage those concerns, Milley appears to have both reached out to and contacted his Chinese counterparts, essentially saying, Yes, things are a little weird here right now, but don't worry about it. We're just working our way through. It's just democracy is a little messy. And then going so far as to say, look, you and I have a relationship. If we were going to attack China, I would call you first. A little exceptional in that regards, although some doubts that that's how that would actually play out or not. But interesting promise to make. And then separately, internally sat down with the various military officials involved with the nuclear chain of command, which the chairman of the Joint Chief of Staff actually isn't directly involved in in regard to those decisions, although usually has notice and made aware of it, and basically asked them to confirm their understanding of the process in what the authors, Woodward and Costa, describe as an oath to uphold the process, presumably. This generated both a lot of backlash against Milley, uh, including with Senator Marco Rubio calling for his resignation, among others, particularly among Republicans. Um, But we've also seen other people step forward and say, in fact, nothing about this was necessarily untoward. This is actually the sort of stuff that Chairman of Joint Chiefs of Staff does all the time, including uh, Robert Costa at the Sunday talk shows coming out and saying something along these lines that, oh, no, sorry, that was a little sensationalistic. But in fact, this wasn't that weird. I want to ask you all, as people who, you know, at the lawfare and elsewhere, right on and study the government. How out of line does this seem? How strange does this seem? And is it something that we should be or Millie should be concerned about that these representations are out there? Does it show a lapse of judgment on his part or is it part of his duty? Quinta, let me start with you. Sure. I will say this struck me as an example of Trump book hype or Trump story hype, whatever you want to call it, kind of Trump derangement syndrome, perhaps never, never, never Uh, getting out of control. Uh, because we're all so starved of Trump content. I mean, we we saw this happen so often during the administration, right, where there was to be clear, no shortage of awful and erratic things that were happening. But every now and then someone would write a story that said, you know, 
X person said X thing or X thing happened and it sounded really, really bad. And then it turned out that it wasn't because it was an offhand comment or they never really said that or they did say it, but in a different context. And it would turn out that everybody had wasted days, you know, getting really worked up over something that ultimately didn't matter very much. And Bob Woodward, though I appreciate, you know, his service to America and his his reporting on the Watergate scandal uh, is one of the worst offenders here. I mean, it is just astonishing how he is able to take completely banal things, write them up and turn them into a complete media circus, which is great for selling books. But I don't really know what service it does to the public here. Natalie. Yeah. So building on one of Quinta's points um, about the sort of interest in Trump related analysis, let's say generously. I think that to me, this was just an example of a broader point about the Trump administration um, and its constant attack on norms, which was that it caused the media and analysts more generally to sort of dig into the inner workings of the executive branch in a way that it really does not tend to do and I think is not particularly good at doing because no one really wants to know how the sausage is made. And it turns out that it's really not that interesting to write about it, even if you do spend the time to figure out how the sausage is made. So there's a lot of pulling out pieces that may legitimately relate to concerns that are quite, quite fair to have. But those pieces that are pulled out are lacking the nuance and the context that one who fully understands how things work in the normal course of government business may not be as alarmed about. So I I don't think there's nothing here. And I think any time that you can get insight into whether it's how the military establishment deals with political instability at home or the nuclear chain of command. I think that's that's always a story worth investigating and worth looking at. You know, I, I will say, I, I think like many of us, I, I was very excited at the story when it first came out. I, I cracked open my Carl Schmidt and was going to write a, a piece on <laughs> Miley's state of exception. And then when I actually started uh, digging into it, it became it's pretty It's never the state of exception, folks. Or, or is it always the state of exception? Um, and and as, as I kept digging in, it became clear that this was more nothing burger than it was scandal. I mean, especially when it became clear that it was not like Miley was just randomly calling Chinese counterparts on a burner phone. There were coordination with the Secretary of Defense. There were tons of diplomats in the room. There were notes taken. I mean, this was an ex- you know, this was one of the many high-level calls that you would expect and you would hope that the uh, high levels of the U.S. military establishment would have, not just with our allies, but with our competitors and adversaries. You know, the, the question about whether the second issue that that Scott raised which is of Miley seeming to try to uh, insert himself into the kind of chain of command. I think I think there's potentially more to that. But at the same time, again, given the chaos that was going on, a reminder from him to everyone that, you know, we should all follow the, the right procedures and keep everyone in the loop is not, to me, crazy. Um, what I will find doesn't look so good is just how much he or his allies seem to be talking to everyone. He He's clearly very concerned with burnishing his own image um, he clearly regrets enormously the Lafayette Square incident. And it's totally understandable for him to want to make his 
part of the story known. But the way to do that is to finish out your time in government service or resign if you feel like you're in an untenable position and then write your memoir. You know, spending all this time talking to journalists while you are the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, clearly in a way that's designed to further your own reputation, does strike me as a little distasteful and ironically didn't even seem to work. You know, if he or his allies spent all this time talking to Woodward and, and Costa and then they still wrote a sensationalist account that put him in a bad light, then I, I really question what exactly he's doing because he seems to be doing the worst parts of self-image crafting without actually doing it well. Yeah, I have also been puzzled by the Mark Milley as an anonymous source trend that we've seen repeatedly over the last few months. I think there have been at least one and maybe two other books, certainly a lot of reporting uh, news stories that like just very clearly is relying on Millie and the people around him as sources, just from, from the way the stories are written. I mean, I think the Woodward and Costa book is one of the worst offenders because it purports to describe his thoughts. So, I mean, who possibly could have been the source there, but I, I agree that it really does seem like he Feels like he screwed up in walking through Lafayette Square in fatigues and I don't know, like wants everyone to know that he's not actually like that bad a guy. But this round of sort of stories that were clearly sourced, at least in part to, you know, people familiar with the thinking of Mark Milley is not the first time that we've had to go through this, but it is the first time that he's actually released a statement saying, no, 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 everything that I did was fine. I mean, there are plenty of things that he hasn't released a statement about that are equally concerning that have to do with Trump's erratic behavior in the last few months of his presidency. So I did find it kind of funny that, you know, the nothing burger is the thing he weighs in on, <laughs> maybe because it's the easiest one for him to say, uh, well, it was nothing. But it really is very strange. So I, I both agree that I think the real story here is kind of the meta story about Millie's a source. But first, I kind of want to push back on the idea that this is a nothing burger, because I actually think this is like really exceptional. We somehow have kind of put ourselves in this position where we're saying, in part because of the way the story was framed, because it was framed as a way that Millie was somehow acting in a sort of extra legal manner um, that, that when that came out to not be true. And I, and I do believe that's not true. Nothing he seems to be have done have been outside his scope of responsibility, right? I do think some of the way he phrased a com potential like political commitment to China about notifying them if they were to be attacked by us is a little questionable. If that's what he actually said, who knows if that was the exact wording he actually used? And, the, and that's such a detail that, you know, I'll withhold judgment on that until we actually know. But what I think is lost in this, though, is that like something can be really, really exceptional without it being a violation of protocol or practice, right? The fact that you had the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, apparently in coordination with the Secretary of Defense, thinking it was necessary to tell the Chinese that we're not going to attack you because things were so chaotic inside the Trump administration is itself pretty big revelation. And that's revelation of a different scale, frankly, in my mind, maybe this is my bias, from, you know, Trump mouthing off in the Justice Department about trying to kill investigations of allies and you know investigate enemies and a lot of the things that we've gotten really used to for Trump, because this is fundamentally the concern about people with people very close to Trump about him doing something that is wildly destructive and is the most powerful thing a president can do. That's pretty scary. So even though it's not untoward, I still think it's a big story um, and worth talking about because of what it tells us about Trump. I also think that maybe is another motivation here, right? Like 
you know, Millie, we're now a year after the Trump administration, just about, or, or eight months at least, and still very much a potent political force. And maybe there's some desire to clarify the record and say, like, this is a real concern. Like, this is what we actually thought at the time. That said, I do think there's this other question as to whether it's appropriate about the chairman of the Joint Chief of Staff doing this and acting as a sort of source. That's not something military officers traditionally do. And it strikes me that there is something fundamentally different about particularly by the way military officers are supposed to think about the relationship to the president, to the chain of command, that might beg a little higher standard of conduct, even if this is something that if Mark Esper were to come out and say this stuff, we would say, oh, that's great. Thank you for telling us, Mark. That was really good information, actually contributes a lot to our understanding of Trump and what he did with the presidency, which is really valuable. It's different for Milley to be in that office currently and still playing this role, even about a former president, even if it's not the current president. Although maybe Biden's OK with it. Biden's come out and voiced support for Milley since this happened. So um, it doesn't seem like he's at serious risk of losing his job. Question I have, though, is should he be? I mean, what should his reaction be? Should it be to resign, as our lawfare colleague Alex Vindman uh, wrote in The Washington Post last week? Should it be for Biden to remove him? Or is him staying in office acceptable even if there might be this perception now that somehow he's shaping a political narrative, which is something that we usually don't like to see military officers do. It doesn't mean they don't do it sometimes, but we don't like to see it. Uh, Natalie. Yeah. So I think there it's, it's useful to sort of articulate the fact that this raises three separate questions, which are of course interrelated, but I think deserve separate treatment. So the first is what happened factually here and was it appropriate which is, you know, perhaps a legal question and certainly also a procedural question. The second is along the lines of what Quinto was saying, which is the decision since then to, if it was Millie himself or if it was close confidants who presumably would have been close enough to not be defying Millie's wishes in talking with the press, is the behavior of potentially trying to bolster his image or whatever, an appropriate thing to be doing. And then the third issue is um, what you just raised, Scott, in terms of what is the proper role here? What is the role of the military? And a sort of question about whether we should start thinking about the military in ways that we haven't typically, or at least haven't in a while, as a sort of fourth not branch of government, but a fourth institution that has individual responsibilities for upholding the sort of project of American democracy. And whether the oath that officers take, and not just officers, but me- members of the military take in you know, professing their fidelity to the Constitution and their training and legal obligations to not ever take illegal orders, even from the president, whether we need to start thinking of the military as also a an actor in this um, in a way that we hadn't thought of typically before the Trump administration started calling that into question in a more obvious way. So j- just one last thought for me, which is that we've been talking about this kind of exclusively in terms of Millie, which makes sense. But I actually think the Esper angle is really, really important because if this was Millie, either by himself or leading the effort, then you have a real civ mill question, right? You have a civilian military issue. But if this is Millie working very closely with Esper or with folks at the State Department, then this is no longer primarily a civ mill issue. This is a unitary executive issue. Like this is a deep state issue, which is, which is different. And I think much less concerning 
right? So I am, I am much more comfortable with members of the president's own civilian administration trying to put roadblocks in front of what they view as reckless action. And, and I, will, I will own the, the, the deep state element of that if I need to. Then I am with saying that the military on its own should feel empowered to disobey otherwise lawful orders. And so to me, what I find a little frustrating and when hopefully there's going to be more, more coverage over is, you know, how much was this just a Millie show or how much of this was Millie maybe doing the most action, but fundamentally either guided by or closely allied with other civilian leaders. Because, because in that case, then you have a question of Trump being sidelined, which is itself a very interesting and important and potentially disturbing issue, but one that I'm less concerned about fundamentally than if this was a pure civ mill problem. I mean, at the end of the day, I think what it really comes down to for me is some of this problem, if it is a problem, has to do with the systems and the way that the executive is organized. You know, a lot of it had to do with nuclear launch authority. There's a good argument for changing the way that that authority works. But at the end of the day, what it really comes down to is we had these problems because we had somebody in office who was not qualified to be there, had no interest in governing, and was actively malicious. And the solution is don't elect that guy. Um, so I don't feel particularly you know, reassured by all of the sort of after action reporting about people did this, people did that, because to some extent you can build it in safeguards, but to some extent the answer is just like, don't elect idiots, which, as we've seen, is not actually a sustainable model for governance. Nor has it ever been, <laughs> but that's okay. Speaking of idiots. <laughs> Speaking of idiots, uh, <laughs> seizing control. I'm afraid I have to end the conversation there uh, as we are coming up on our time. But I do want to flag for people that if you are interested in learning more, particularly about the Civ Mill angle of this Millie story, today's episode of the Lawfare podcast, our sister podcast, digs deep on this, hosted by David Priest with our colleague Alexander Vindman, Corey Shockey of AEI, and Peter Fever of Duke University. It's a great conversation. Really encourage people to dial in there. Which, to be clear, because of the magic of how podcast recording works, today's podcast will be yesterday's podcast when you all listen to this tomorrow, which tomorrow will be today. So with that super clear explanation to object lessons. In other words, the Lawfare podcast that you want to listen to is Tuesdays, and the Rational Security podcast that you are currently listening to, assuming all goes well, is Wednesdays. Well, unless you listen to it on Thursday. All I know is that I'm on West Coast time and everything's a little bit off. So I take no responsibility for figuring out your calendar. Listener, you'll find it. You know where to find it. Get on it. With that, let us go to object lessons. Alan, why don't you go ahead and kick us off? Sure. So I, I'm still smarting at your smart Alec comment at the top of the podcast that if, if I am our closest link to real America, to the great center of this grand continent that we're in trouble. And the way I'm going to justify my middle of America bona fides is with my object lesson, which is a delicious tater tot hot dish that I ate last week, uh, prepared by my wonderful and talented wife. Uh, there will be a, a, a link to a picture of it in the show notes. So hot dish, for those of you who are not so fortunate as to live in Minnesota, is basically just shepherd's pie. But instead of the mashed potatoes, tater tots. And that seems like a small thing. It just changes everything. So it's really American. It's, innovation it's amazing. There's it's a best. wonderful recipe for it in the New York Times. Highly recommend it. 
But the double innovation that we made was to try using impossible food meat, which is one of the meat substitutes, but that actually tastes and has the texture totally indistinguishable from, from ground beef. So I, I can say we, we had a vegetarian, very tasty, very filling hot dish that I highly recommend everyone try. Alan, I will say the fact that your claim to Midwestern authenticity is cooking a recipe from the New York Times with fake vegan meat may not be the most compelling case, but... I'm doing the best that I can, Scott. <laughs> As a longtime vegetarian, I wholly support it. Quinta, why don't you go ahead with your object lesson? Well, I'm going to now cement the fact that I'm a, I'm a Beltway elitist. I would like to give a shout out to everybody's favorite Wendy's in Washington, D.C. If you have not been to this cursed Wendy's, it is in the middle of a traffic circle, which is really more of a traffic triangle, I would say. It's the intersection of two major roads going in and out of the city. Um, if you're coming into D.C. from a particular route, you will see the Wendy's as the first thing within the city limits. It is totally impossible to get to the Wendy's because of all of the aforementioned traffic. It is one of the most dangerous intersections in D.C. And it has been dubbed by residents uh, Dave Thomas Circle, which is a pun because there is a traffic circle elsewhere in D.C. called Thomas Circle and Dave Thomas is the founder of Wendy's. So unfortunately, for inexplicable reasons, the city government of DC has decided that they don't want the Wendy's there. And they are getting rid of it and redoing the intersection to make it less dangerous. So we all are saying farewell to the worst Wendy's on the East Coast. And just as, you know, a a final goodbye, the Wendy's announced that it would be giving away uh, milkshakes to anyone who stopped by, thereby, you know, ensuring that traffic on Dave Thomas Circle will remain atrocious for at least a little while longer. So thank you, Wendy's, for your service. We salute you. Well, for my object lesson, I want to share a little story about the small universe we all live in, because I am as I mentioned to you all earlier, here in California for a pair of weddings, uh, straddling weekends and spending a few days here in between visiting folks. And I was fortunate at the first of these weddings to meet a couple who mentioned that they were living in the Twin Cities and mentioned, like, oh, yeah, I, I work with a guy who lives in aforesaid uh, Minnesota, works at the University of Minnesota where she worked. I think both of them worked, actually. I mentioned it's like, oh, yeah, it's a guy named Alan Rosenstein. Do you know them? They're like, know him. He officiated our wedding, not last weekend, um, which I feel great camaraderie with you, Alan, because I am here to officiate a wedding this coming weekend, uh, and I'm in the process of finalizing exactly what I'll be doing there. But the real relevance of the story, I think, for lawfare listeners, uh, or rational security listeners, I should say, is that they said, oh, that's so funny. We asked your wife yesterday if she knew a guy named Alan Rosenstein, and she said she had no idea. And that's how I learned that my wife does not listen to rational security. <laughs> Oh, but she's here with me in the room right now. So we're slowly remedying it one quarter of a show at a time. <laughs> she can listen to at least my contribution to it. Scott, <laughs> I want to wish you I want to wish you luck with officiating. It is really fun, but it is a big responsibility. I recommend big everyone who has the opportunity to do so to do so. But it it is more effort than you think it will take, because once you start writing the thing, you realize you don't want to make mess it up. And it's hard to say anything interesting about marriage. That's like not a Hallmark card. Also, I just want to say uh, another sign of Scott being a total hopeless coastal elitist. 
like he found out that someone else was from Minnesota and played the do you know this guy's name game and it actually worked. Like there are more than eight of us in but Minnesota. I mean, lucky break for Scott. Fair enough, but it did work. It did work. With that, uh, Natalie, while you close us out with your object lesson. Sure. Well, so I have one serious one and one more object lesson-y one. Um, My more serious one is that I happened to pass the memorial to COVID-19 victims on the National Mall the other day, and it is really, really moving. So people in the D.C. area, I would really recommend that you go over there. And people who are not, um, there are plenty of really good pictures and coverage of it in the news. Um, So check it out because it's really powerful. My less serious one is that France should definitely be in the news a lot more often because it gives me an excuse to read the French press and also because the French language just has a really delightful capacity to express outrage. And for proof of that, I will just refer all of you to the translation of the French national anthem. So I have I have really enjoyed the lead up to today's rational security. All right. Well, we'll put we will put a link to that translation in the show notes so people can find it and soak in all of uh, the French adjectives that they can in translation, at least. But that, for the record, brings us to the end of this week's episode. Sadly, Rational Security 2.0 is like its forefathers, a production of Lawfare. You can still find our show page at lawfareblog.com, where you'll find liner notes for this episode, including the links we mentioned, and links to the object lessons we discussed, as well as the articles that we were basing some of our conversation on. You can also purchase Rational Security swag at lawfarestore.com or go to patreon.com slash lawfare to become a material supporter of Lawfare in exchange for some ad-free podcast feeds and other special benefits, including a new committed ad-free feed for this very podcast that you are listening to right now. Please do follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. And whenever you, wherever you may download the podcast, please be sure to leave a rating and a review and hit that share button to pass it along to your loved ones. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Hamza Shitu of Goat Rodeo. And our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. On behalf of my co-host, Quintan Allen, and our special guest, Natalie Orpit, not Natalie Norpit, as much as I may try and make that a thing, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Until then, goodbye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.